Many of you know that my husband, Andy, is also a Presbyterian minister. During the 19 years that we have been a clergy couple, we've experienced many of the joys and challenges of ministry, often in separate congregations. Our first call was to serve as co-associate pastors at a big church, but since Ella and Lucy were born, we've served in different contexts. Andy's often served in transitional ministries and not always in healthy congregations. In fact, he's become a bit of an expert in dysfunctional systems and congregational leadership. Other than the occasional joint mission venture or perhaps a presbytery committee, for the most part, the congregations that we have served don't involve the same people, except once. Andy once served as the interim pastor of a church right after they had been through a season of terrible conflict. This was years ago, and the conflict began when the PCUSA changed the ordination standards, thereby making the way clear for openly LGBTQ plus people to serve as elders and deacons and ministers of the word and sacrament. I won't go into the details, but I will tell you that rather than disagreeing without being disagreeable, as I'm told we like to do here, they fought. Families divided. And after much weeping and gnashing of teeth, there was a church split. Half the church left. They went down the street to start a new congregation, and the other half stayed. They stayed in a beautiful, historic, and now half-empty sanctuary. When Andy arrived to serve as their interim, they were bruised and they were so broken. There were only two people left on staff. There was a musician and a secretary. The secretary was a member of the church that I served as pastor, so she worked with Andy, but she worshipped in Greer. I'll never forget, as long as I live, the day Andy called me to say that he was almost certain she was embezzling church funds. She was stealing from the people who had already suffered so much hurt. Very long story short, she stole hundreds of thousands of dollars over a number of years. She was creative in her theft. She used credit cards and checks, and she stole cash right out of the offering plate. After just a bit of research, the evidence was overwhelming, but at some point, his already weary people gave up following the paper trail. Her arrest ended up being for only a fraction of what they knew she'd stolen. It was terrible. Now, remember I told you she was a member of the church that I served as pastor. So, of course, I immediately looked to make sure she didn't have access to any funds in Greer. 
We were a much bigger operation with sophisticated financial policies and procedures, checks and balances, audits and financial reviews. We had a professional CPA on staff. It just couldn't have happened there. But the Presbyterian women in Greer, for which she was the treasurer, had none of those. Their funds were completely separate from church funds. They had their own little checkbook, and she held it. It took us less than an hour to prove that she'd forged PW checks. One that was supposed to have been written to Thornwell Home for Children had her name in the pay-to line. I remember saying out loud, she stole from the children, like the most vulnerable members of the family of God. You can imagine how this story ends. There were lawyers, there were courtrooms, there were tears, and there was a trust so broken that every time I see a similar story reported on the news, I still feel physically ill. Why on earth am I telling you this terrible story? I'm so glad that you ask. (laughs) You see, I'm telling you. Because at the same time that this was happening, I was doing some doctoral work on congregational giving and generosity. I was reading experts who, told, who tell us that in the nonprofit, in the church world, the top three reasons people give are, number one, belief in the mission of the institution, number two, respect for leadership, and number three, financial transparency and responsibility. My studies had already convinced my head of these things, but the experience I just recounted convinced my heart. So it is with the head and the heart of a pastor, a pastor of a church that has an operating budget of roughly $1.7 million. I want you to hear me say that fiscal transparency and responsibility are essential. They are important to me and to the life and health of a congregation. Since I'd lived through that trauma during my interview process here, you know I ask lots of questions. Your answers made it clear that faith finances have always and will always be handled in the most decent and in order fashion. Our policies and procedures here are in tip-top shape. But like me, some of you have been part of other churches. And I'm guessing one or two of you have heard a similar story from a church up north. Different churches and different pastors have different ideas related to speaking of finances, church finances and our own. Some pastors talk about money way too much, and some pastors shy away from talking about it altogether. I strive for neither extreme We'll talk about it because, first of all, Jesus talked about people's use of money more than he talked about anything else, and in all things we follow his lead. Second, because generous giving is the most meaningful spiritual discipline, and third, fiscal, because fiscal responsibility has been and always will be essential for the health, for the life of a community of faith. A few weeks ago, you received via email a third quarter financial report that looks like this. If you didn't, there's some at the information desk. The last line of it is an invitation to see our financial administrator if you want any more details. 
that invitation will always be there. Because open books demonstrate transparency and they tell a story. They tell a story about what we value, about how we live into our mission. This church's mission is to be a Presbyterian community of joy and excitement that promises to love and comfort and respect everyone through the challenging power of Christ. The church books tell how we live into that mission, what we value. Our personal books do the same. Our checkbooks, and if you don't have a checkbook anymore, you know, your financial statement, the expense report, for you, it tells what we value, what we spend on housing and food and entertainment and travel, charitable giving. It tells a story about how we manage the resources God has entrusted to our care. The word entrusted is key because God supplies it all, all of it. So in all things, in the management of our time and our talent and our treasure, in all things, to God be the glory. Now, I'm aware that some of you are not so sure about this sermon right now. Typically, sermons about the rich man and the eye of the needle and the widow who offered everything she had, sermons that invite us to serve God with everything that has been entrusted to our care, our time, our talent, our treasure, they're not always the most popular. It's like a story of a young man who was fresh out of seminary, and he gets up first Sunday ever in a church, and he gets in the pulpit to preach, and he preaches a sermon on the evils of tobacco use. After church, one of the elders takes him aside and reminds him that they are in Kentucky. (laughs) Since, you know, many farmers love tobacco, maybe he could preach on something else. So the next Sunday, he gets in the pulpit, and he preaches the sermon condemning the sin of drunkenness, specifically hard liquor. Elder takes him aside, reminds him that lots of people in the church work at the local distillery. Maybe he could preach on something else. Third week he gets up and he preaches a passionate sermon on the sin of gambling, especially horse racing. (laughs) Elder said, son, have you not heard of the Kentucky Derby? What then, he says, should I preach on? Elder thinks for a minute, clears his throat and said, well, Next Sunday, you could preach on the evils of voodoo in Haiti. We'd all love that. (laughs) Because none of us want to hear a sermon that hits too close to home. Well, none of us really want to feel convicted. And every preacher knows better than to preach a sermon aimed to shame, or they should know better. Shame and guilt will never, ever be my purpose in preaching. My call is to speak honestly and passionately and joyfully about God's call on our lives to live as faithful disciples, servants who offer up our time and our talent and our treasure, not one or the other, but all three, all that we have to glorify God. Now, I suspect the reason this is not the most popular topic is because of a statistic I read not long ago. It's said that the average American has less than $5,000 in savings, and that the average household has $16,000 in credit card debt. Now, while this congregation might not reflect that statistic exactly, what it does tell me is that for many people, money 
is a difficult subject, fraught with complex emotions, including confusion and secrecy and shame, and all those emerge when we talk about it in the church. And yet we know the ministry of the church, of faith Presbyterian church, is important to us because it's God's work, and I believe everyone is called to give with a glad and grateful heart, and that we all know deep down, we know, like the text says, God supplies it all. None of it's ours. So in all things, to God be the glory. I mean, how often do we say, this is the day the Lord has made, right? We say, this day is a blessing. We know the time's not ours. We know the talent's not ours. And often I can see that when I watch other people, especially people who are talented in a field I'm so not, like musicians say. I watch Michael play the postlude on Sundays, and I'll tell you what, I know he practices and I know he works, but no matter how hard one practices and one works, people who have a talent from God, you know it when you see it. The talent's not ours. And the treasure's not ours either, friends. It's all just been entrusted to our care. As the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? I know lots of you know that. I know that because you've lived your whole lives with the understanding that none of it's yours. All of it's from God. You've been living life in a way that's a response, giving with a happy and grateful and generous heart. You've been like this boy who years ago, it was years ago, went into a coffee shop. And he was standing in the line, and the waitress seated him, and he really didn't want to sit down, but the line was long, and so he thought the service might be quick, and He sat down at the table, and he asked the waitress, how much for a chocolate sundae? The woman says, 50 cents. See, I told you it was a really long time ago. (laughs) Boy thinks for a minute, gets out his coins, adds them together, and he asks a second question, how much for a bowl of vanilla ice cream? Well, that'll be 35 cents. He said, I'll take it. He ate his ice cream, and he headed over to the register to pay. She quickly bussed the table so that the next customer who wanted a full meal, you know, could sit down. But when she went to wipe the table clean, you know what she saw? She saw two nickels and five pennies sitting next to an empty bowl. And she thought, oh, well, that young man could have had his chocolate sundae, but he would not have been able to say thanks to the one who gave it. The financial update that I referenced earlier is our way of saying thank you. Thanks be to God who gave it all. It's also our way of being responsible and transparent, telling you how we're managing the church's resources that God's entrusted to our care. But most importantly, it's our way of saying thank you. Thank you for your faithful and generous giving. Thank you for giving online and for giving in the plate. And thank you for participating in God's work in and through this particular congregation in the Church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for every gift of every size. And about that, 
I'll tell you one more story. So my former church, we had a capital campaign. Anyone who has been around church very long has lived through a capital campaign, right? Up north, in the south, everywhere we have capital campaigns. So we were about to have one. And we were interviewing consultants, you know, experts to help us raise these additional funds. And I'll never forget one of them who did not get the job. He sat at the opposite end of the table from me. And he said, uh, a church this size, the ones to raise this amount of money will need X number of significant gifts. I asked what he meant by significant. He said, now you are going to need this money, this many in the $100,000 range, and this many in the $50,000 range, and this many in the $30,000 range. And when he finished, I said, I don't think you understand. You see, we believe that every gift given to do God's work, every gift given to the glory of God, every gift of every size is significant. You see, sir, there is an elderly woman who lives across the street from the church in government-subsidized housing. And every week, she uses her walker, and she walks across the street to come to worship, and she carries her offering in hand, and it is given to the glory of God. It is her first fruit. And her gift will be as significant to this campaign as the person who gives $100,000, because you know what? I know him too. And I know he gives from a glad and grateful and generous heart. It's his first fruit. Given to glorify God, it is his gift and her gift and their life and their witness. They're significant because they serve with whatever gift was entrusted to their care. They lift up their time and their talent and their treasure, their very lives to glorify God. May we do the same. May we live in ways that all that we do and all that we say, our very lives are a thank you to the one who gave it. To God be the glory and the power, now and forever. Amen.